Have you ever missed an important email because of your overloaded inbox? Wading through forests of unread emails, tons of newsletters, and follow-ups to find the one is a very frustrating experience. Seeing the number of unread emails growing every day is stressful, and taking the time to go through everything is a waste. So the folks at Clean Email came up with a cleaning solution, and it is a real game changer. First, Clean Email organizes all of your emails into smart views like social notifications, newsletters, unread emails, emails from project management tools, emails from dead ends, top senders, and on and on. This way, with Clean Email, you can quickly take care of those thousands of emails in your mailbox, marking them as read, archiving them, labeling and moving them around by hundreds or thousands at once. And then you can set up auto-clean filters to automatically archive or move emails around as they arrive. For example, one feature I really like is the ability to auto-archive emails as they become older than a couple of months. And use Smart Unsubscriber to keep your mailbox clean from newsletters and noisy marketers. Clean email was designed with your privacy and security of your data in mind. Since they are in the business of providing a great service in exchange for a fair fee, they guarantee to not sell or analyze your data. They are verified by Yahoo and Google and support all email providers out there. Visit clean.email forward slash productivity and get 50% off the five accounts annual package. Again, that's clean.email forward slash productivity. You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. Most people just want to have a better life. They want to run a team that is less angsty, more productive, more focused, have people who are more confident and more competent and more autonomous and more creative and more engaged, have more of a life so they can go home earlier and hang out with the kids and the spouse or binge Netflix or whatever you want to do when, you're, when you go home. That was Michael Bungay-Stanier, a longtime co-conspirator and the author of the new book, the Advice Trap. He joins me today to jam about why too quickly falling into the advice trap makes us worse managers and our teams worse off. We also discuss some patterns and questions to ask when you're wanting to be more coach-like for your team and how to give advice when it's needed. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Michael, thanks so much for joining me on the Productive Flourishing Podcast again. And as I was reading your new book, The Advice Trap, I was like, well, Michael's done it again. He's <laughs> book that I think is going to be so timely. It was timely for me. It um, elevated my own coaching game in a way that I wasn't anticipating. It gave me some new things things to talk about. And it was like the perfect follow-up to your other great book, The Coaching Habit, which we had a conversation about. Well, thanks, man. I mean, thanks for having me back because, you know, you've heard all my jokes. So to pull me back again, you're like, okay, what do you got for me this time? I'm like, I got nothing. Well, I've got a new book, but I got nothing other than that. But I really, you know, I appreciate you. We've we've been friends for 
I don't know, Charlie. What is that? Like more than ten years, I'm going to say. And yeah, so you and I have, we, you and I have kind of stumbled around and <laughs> trying to figure out what are we doing with our lives and what books are we writing and who who do we want to be when we grow up? And you, for one, seem to have figured that out. So I'm interested to find out the secrets of your success. I, I wish that were true, but I'm going to take you way back. All right. Like, I remember in 2010. We did the, what was it, plan, Making Plans That Work webinar together. Yeah, that's right. That was cool. That was very, very cool. And I remember it. One of the reasons I remember it is um, because right in the middle of it, I don't know if I've ever told you this, um, we were moving in like a week from Nebraska to Portland. Right. And my wife had decided to um, give our cats some of the sedatives to make sure that it worked well on them before we got on the road. <laughs> and one of them did not take well with it at all. This is, by the way, a great setup for a stand-up comedy routine. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. So one of them, Petey, did not take to it well. And he, like, his heart stopped and everything like that. And so oh, she God. runs in. And we were about 45 minutes into the call, bro. <laughs> she runs in and she gives me this hair, like, I got to go. And I'm like, what the? <laughs> um, and the, so then she goes, luckily, we were using um, Maestro Conference at the time. So it was still telecall. Right? right. And so no one saw me momentarily panic because I had no idea what was going on. Wow. Um, and so I remember because it, it was a great time, but it was also one of those like, oh, yeah, I remember that time that happened. Wow. No worries. That That is clearly burned in your brain because I was like, was it 2010? And you're like, oh, no, it was 2010. I know exactly when it was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like May 2010 is when it was. Um, and that's just because it, it related to when we moved to Portland. So anyways, um, great to jam with you as always glad that we go way back and I'm going to start this conversation in multiple ways. And, and I love that you have this page in the book and that we need to acknowledge the irony of having a conversation that gives advice from a book that shows how to give less advice. Right. right. Well, you know, here's the thing, Charlie, I'm not anti-advice. In fact, I'm pro-advice. I mean, you and I, we're book writers, and if a book isn't a piece of advice, what is? Or, you know, we're speakers, and that's all about giving advice from the stage as well. So I am not anti-advice. What I'm worried about and what this book is about is the default habit many of us have of having advice giving be the way we respond to any situation. And we don't even know it. That's, I mean, that's the nature of a habit. You know, somebody starts talking, you don't know what they're talking about. You don't know who's involved. You don't know the context. You have no idea of the technical specs. But after about 10 seconds in, you're like, oh, I've got some initial thoughts on what you should be doing here. You know, when it comes down to it, we are advice-giving maniacs. And whilst there is always a place for a good piece of advice, what I'm trying to do is break that knee-jerk, look, let me launch in and add value by telling you what to do. That is exhausting for you, annoying for the other person, ineffective all around. And I just think there's a better way of doing things. Absolutely. And to give some context, some additional context for this, um, you know this, Mike, but other people might not. I am both a professional coach, like people pay yeah. me to do this executive coaching, entrepreneurial coaching, and I have a small team of six people. Right. And so I'm a manager at the same time. And this creates a lot of really interesting dualities for me because there are times where people show up and they are paying me for advice and coaching and things like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then there are my teammates who maybe don't always want to be coached. Maybe that's not the right modality in the moment. Right. right? Um, and so, you know, it creates these awkward modality tensions, but I don't think that's unusual 
for many managers in that in any given moment, if you're really introspective or you're paying attention, there's that question of how, what type of leader leadership do I show up with right well, now? That's, it. that's exactly right. And there's research that is backing up what you're saying. So Daniel Goleman, who's the guy who made emotional intelligence kind of better known, um, back in uh, year 2000, maybe 2001, he wrote an article for the Harvard Business Review called Leadership That Gets Results. He then got turned into a book called Primal Leadership. But the, the article is all you need. And it says basically this. There are six t- styles of leadership. They all have their pros and their cons. You know, each of them has a context in which that is the appropriate style of leadership. Typical leaders use two, maybe three of those styles. Great leaders know how to use all six of them. They know the appropriate way to respond at the right time. Coaching is one of those six styles of leadership. And in the article, Goldman says, look, people just don't do this because it just takes too much time, even though it's shown to drive uh, culture and productivity. And of the six styles, it's like two or three in terms of driving uh, profitability. So it's a really powerful leadership skill, and it is massively underutilized. So a big part under the umbrella of me trying to make curiosity an essential part of how people show up in the world, the way that often manifests itself in organizations or in small teams is, let me show you how to be more coach-like as a leader. Not necessarily a coach. I mean, I know, Charlie, you're, you're, you're a professional coach. You actually kind of can wear the badge. But honestly, m- most people don't want to be a coach. Otherwise, they'd have already got their certification and become a coach. Most people just want to have a better life. They want to run a team that is less angsty, more productive, more focused, have people who are more confident and more competent and more autonomous and more creative and more engaged, have more of a life so they can go home earlier and hang out with the kids and the spouse or binge Netflix or whatever you want to do when you when you go home. Because my definition of coach, being coach-like is stay curious a little bit longer, rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly. Do that and you get a better life as do the people around you. I totally get that. And I'm, I was curious as I was reading the book because um, rightly so, I think it focuses on the manager's impulse to give advice as the default. Yeah. Um, and I had a curiosity because I was like, and I've also seen where teammates actually are like, I don't actually have time for that. Please tell me the answer. Like, I, I don't I don't have time for this right now. Right. Yeah. And so what do we do as managers in that scenario? Well, what do you do? Oh, here we go. Um, this gets tricky. Yeah. I, what I do is first pause and say, okay, is this the time for where they can hear this type of conversation is, yeah. is one of the subject things. And second thing that I do as a leader is I say, what have I done to create this sort of scenario, this pattern that this is, this is what's at play? Like, am I putting in indirect pressure on them to get something done such that we can't pause and have this conversation, so on yeah. and so forth. Now, the tricky thing, and I'm going to use your language here, is I have to be careful that I don't go into like the um, control it, <laughs> you know, yeah, put yeah. that control it on and be like, I know what's best for us right now is to have this type of conversation. <laughs> yeah. So whether you want it or not, we're going to coach. And so when that happens to me, I'm mostly like, hmm, this is interesting. Yeah. Here's 
usually what I will do is say, I totally hear you. We got things to do. Here's what I'm looking at. I'm concerned that this is setting a precedent that downstream might end up in the same scenario over and over again. And I'm wondering, and it, it depends because sometimes, um, so for those of us who are those who are not in the coaching and leadership development yeah. world, there are the levels yeah. of decision, level one, level two, level three decisions. When it's one of those decisions where it's like they should be able to make the decision without yeah. telling me and they yeah. don't. So yeah. my question is always like, so what is it about this scenario? Like this is a level one decision that you've handed to me. And I'm curious yeah. of what's happening about that. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of force a slowdown and don't let them dictate that. But I'm always, again, in the back of my mind, it's like, hmm. Is is that just to control it? Like I know what we should be doing versus the the you know so, seeing so my, what happens. Go ahead. My, my reflection on your answer: the essential piece of it is you going hmm, <laughs> <laughs> and going. Well, let me let me weigh up. You know, the language I use in the new book is the prizes and punishments of a certain way of behaving. Because if you give them the answer or you ask them the question, there are prizes and punishments for both choices. And, you know, the prizes of giving them the answer is it's fast, it's transactional, it gets it done, it's probably the right answer. They get to go away and do it. You get them out of your life so you can do your stuff. The punishment is you potentially set a precedent. You, dis, you know, it's a subtle act of disempowerment. You allow them to uh, promulgate the idea that, oh, I can't get, up the, get the answer myself and shirk potential responsibility. So you weigh it up. Same with asking a question. You know, the prize of asking a question is you be more coach-like. You make learning happen. You push autonomy. You push responsibility. The, the punishment is it takes longer. It can be slightly annoying. They may not get it the first time. This miraculous transformation into creativity and self-sufficiency doesn't happen overnight. So you've got that to weigh up as well. So context is everything. You know, you use the level one, two, and three. Um, I use a slightly different, I use a metaphor, which is the same but different. It comes from uh, Fierce Conversations by Susan Scott. Mm-hmm. She goes, is it a um, twig, branch, trunk, or root decision? Mm-hmm. Same principle, which is there's some stuff that I should never even know about. You know, decisions like I don't even want to know that you've had to make the decision. And it kind of escalates down to to root decisions, which is that's probably my decision in the end. I'm interested in your input, but I get to make that call. So it, it depends, Charlie. What what's what I love is you going, it's a thoughtful response where you're responding to the bigger meta picture of what are the implications here on our relationship and my role as a leader? Because what we're trying to break is a response that is not mindful, that is just a ha- habitual, going, oh, I always coach you, or I always give you the answer. You know, more typically, I always give you the answer. So that's what I'd be doing. Because, you know, there are some times where you're like, you know what, it's five o'clock on a Friday, I'm desperate to go and have a gin and tonic. <laughs> you are desperate to go and have a gin and tonic. I am desperate for you to go and have a gin and tonic. This is not the time for a coaching conversation. This is the time for me to go, sure, here's the answer to this. Let's get this done. But by the way, next time you come back and ask me this, it won't it won't be working like this. Absolutely. And that sort of prompts me to the second question that I have is 
Um, oftentimes as leaders and managers, you'll spot or you'll see something that is either maybe you sense it's going to go off the rails or maybe you, you see something coming down that the person doesn't. Yeah. And so in that case, um, you know, there's that urge to be even like the proactive leader or the proactive coach to be like, hey, I noticed this. Yeah. Um, but then again, you're being that proactive, introducing that. And I'm just like, hmm, is that the control it or is that where does this sit in with things? Right. And yeah. how might we do that in a way that doesn't not force, but doesn't presume that this particular modality of leadership is the way that this conversation is going to unfold? So you, you talk about control it, and what you're talking about is the three, one of the three different personas of the advice monster. So the three personas tell it, they're kind of, oh, I've got to have the answer. If I don't have the answer, I'm failing you. Save it, which is like I'm responsible for everything and for you and for the situation. And if anything goes wrong, my bad, and we fail. And control it, which is I win by never losing control, by always being in control. And if I lose control... Um, then we lose, I lose, we all lose around that. The, the context for this is your advice monster is a habitual response. You know, you're kind of like, this is my, I'm just reacting to this because it's the safer, easier place to go. No matter which of the three personas kind of is showing up and is wagging the tail of your particular dog. You know, you, you face a, a, a piece around, you know, I'm just older and wiser and more experienced than you. I have a bigger picture. I can see issues coming down the, the path. So you go, well, I've got choices. Do, we, do I just keep quiet and wait for the car crash? Because, you know, somebody once said uh, experience comes from mistakes. <laughs> so you've got to allow the mistakes to happen because that's how you get the, the scars, right? Uh, Michael Abrashoff, who wrote This Is Your Boat, you know, 20 years ago, went, look, there are two types of mistakes, above the waterline mistakes or below the waterline mistakes. So if you're like, it's an above the waterline mistake, it's going to be hard, it's going to cost us some time, maybe a bit of money, but you know what? It's so worth it to watch them struggle with that. It takes a, a certain type of leader who, to, be, to be confident enough to pull that off. Another leader might go, look, I can see some stuff happening or at least potentially happening. I don't want to tell you what's happening because I might not even be right. But maybe there's a way of doing a little scenario planning, which is like, okay, if this is a situation and this is the decision you make, let's walk that into the future for a month, two months, three months. Let's see what happens. Let's guess at the implications. Let's see if you figure out what I think might be happening. And there's an opportunity in that for you to go, you know, one other possibility that might happen is the blah. <laughs> and, and you make it a teaching moment where you're like, I'm helping you see the future. And then the third option is to go, you know, we're not going to do this because I've done this before and I've seen this happen and that's going to derail us and I'm just going to say no to that right away. All three of those, there are, there are times when each one of those might be the appropriate response. Make a choice. I personally probably would be doing the middle one most often, which is make it coach-like, but I've got something to teach you in this. So I'm not going to be, I'm not going to not share some of my hard-earned wisdom because I've now spent 52 years on this planet making stupid mistakes. Let's have somebody else benefit from that, not just me. 
Absolutely. And and to be honest, two things came up probably in the questions that I'm asking. And I know you know this, Michael, because you're you. One, that, I, that I've had enough control it vibes shows that I know that I need to work against that. Yeah. Uh, mili- military services not do well when it comes to certain right. types of leadership because they train you in a certain way and that's your default. Right. And so I know that I have to work against those tendencies and I sometimes will, will put on the brakes too much. Second thing, those were actually real things that were happening this morning as I was preparing for the day. I had a teammate issue come up and I was like, Ooh, I think this is going this way. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to let it go that way, but how do right. I, how do I not let the car crash happen um, without predicting and telling someone that they're setting themselves up for a car crash. And so real problems that, that I faced this morning. And so how did you, how did you deal with that? That second one where you're like, I think I can see an issue down the road that they may not yet have seen. How did you end up uh, addressing that? I punted until this conversation. Oh, cool. <laughs> I'm serious. That, that's what I did. Cause I was like, I'm, I'm going to ask the guy who wrote the book about this. Um, well, ha- well, having heard what I think the options are, I may not have got all of the options. Which one feels like the path that you want to explore? In this one, it's going to be the second one. Yeah. And, um, because I, um, my team has told me that they value the fact that I can see things that they can't and they want to right. let me like, don't just let us run into a brick wall. Right. right. Uh, but also, let us figure out a solution. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so, so that's what I was thinking is like, okay, I see this happening. Here are some options yeah. um, and, and letting it unfold. But at the same time, and, and I'll just put it all out there. It's, we have two products that we're currently developing that are very time sensitive. They got twinned in the uh-huh. sense of they got pushed together and one is sort of fighting with the other one. And there's a very good chance that both are going to miss their season because they're fighting and, you know, all the complications that happen on the product launch. And I was like, no need for both of them (laughs) um, to fail when one of them I know can go ahead and go. And so I was sort of looking at at that sort of scenario going on right now of like, okay, like this is if if I let this one go as a team, it could have substantial downturn, downstream repercussions um, just because it's a seasonal product um, and we're in a peak season. I mean, this is really interesting to me because, you know, one of the one of the roles of being a leader was it Harry S. Truman that had the buck stops here or the buck stops with me or something I think like so. that. Yeah, yeah. So it's also to realize that as a leader, you get to make decisions, and in fact, what you should be doing is you should be wrestling with the really hard decisions that other people in your team aren't capable yet of making so as a leader even you know it's just it you you and i both run relatively small companies but as the leader of a small company you're like this isn't this isn't a billion dollar thing that i'm wrestling with unless unless you guys have really picked up your business in the last number of years i don't think it's a billion dollar piece not yet but but what you should be doing is wrestling with the really hard ones where you're like i don't need this is tricky this is ambiguous this is hard I may need to make the decision to kill off something that we as a team have invested a ton of time and therefore money and emotional kind of angst and kind of hopes for the future into to say, look, this is my decision. This one dies so this one can live and get out on time and have a chance of success. And one of the subtleties of 
being more coach-like, and this is one that I wrestle with all the time, is there is a way that you can abrogate your responsibility to make difficult decisions. You're like, no, I'll just be coach-like and ask them questions and see what they come up with. And I get to wash my hands of the situation. And that's, that's it. But it all comes down to, are you being mindful about these choices? Are you thinking about it? Are you doing your best, taking your best guess about where the decision lives? Or are you just on automatic? And that's what I'm pushing against. I appreciate that. And in most of my leadership <laughs> development over the last three or four years has just been learning to slow down. Like yeah. I don't have to have an answer right now. Like it came yeah. up. Um, so I had another one of those that popped up today where a teammate was like, well, there's this new way of, of promoting and advertising the book. Should we do it? And I was like, I don't know. That's a lot to figure out. And is it the time? And so this is, and, and we'll probably go there because I think people think coaching has to be a real time scenario, but it was, it was via Slack. And I just gave the like thinking emoji. Yeah. <laughs> right. Just to let her know that I had it. Yeah. I'm not ignoring it. I just don't know right now. Yeah. And yeah. let me come back to you in a day or two or three once I've had some time to think about it. But I know an older version of me would have been like, well, I got to stop everything yeah. and do one of two things. Push the decision on them um, to abrogate that or two, like figure it out right now as opposed to saying, you know what? Actually, that's important. Not urgent. It can yeah. wait. And the right answer may emerge. I, I and. You know, in my, so I think this is 20 years ago because it was just after I arrived in Toronto and I, I didn't know anybody. So I was having coffee with anybody and everybody who would meet with me. And, you know, I'm majority of those coffees. I was walking away going, I never need to have coffee with you again. That was, well, I know that was one of those meetings that wasn't useful. But every now and then you, you kiss a frog and it turns into a princess. I had this coffee with a woman who was a coach, super experienced senior leader. And uh, she gave me a metaphor that stuck with me all these years. She said, look, it's, it's like you're swimming underwater. And what you've got to remember is the longer you can hold your breath, the more interesting place it is that you pop up. So with some of these conversations, you're like, let me just swim underwater for a while. Let me marinate in this. Let me just mull it over and sleep on it. And let my subconscious work on it. And it'll either keep coming back as something that's niggling you and worth kind of getting into, or it'll just kind of, you know, fade away. I mean, I, re I really recognize what you're wrestling with because I'm, I'm a shiny object man. I'm like, oh, my God, it's a thing. This is amazing. We should definitely drop everything, people. We're just going all in on the thing. And, you know, I'm a slow learner, but I've finally come to some, most of the time anyway, I go, yeah, it's, it's almost never the saving thing. It's almost always worth waiting. It's almost always worth just seeing how it plays out a little bit longer and then being wise about going or going for it or not so much. Yeah. Just a plug here for, um, what is the Jason Fried and Hannah Meyer Hansen's new book? It, um, it doesn't have to be crazy at work. Yeah. Um, and calm business. Down, I haven't read it yet, but I got it down there. Oh no, I I have read it. I love that book. I mean, it's it's always slightly complicated for me because with that with Jason Fried stuff, he's like, you know, uh, base camp. It's it's base camp, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm like, it's like this. Um, it's it's this eclectic company. It's a distributed workforce. It's virtual. It's hugely profitable. It's backed by Jeff Bezos. You know, there's like 
a whole bunch of things in there where you're like, well, bravo for creating this, but I'm not sure how to pull that off. But there's also just a, as with his early book, Rework, which I think is his, his best book, but those two are his best books. Um, uh, there's just so much kind of questioning the norm and going, well, why would you do it like that? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think what's great, and I agree with you, is that I'm like, hmm, you know, it's one thing when you're in this type, sort of unicorn company and you're the leaders of the company and you could yeah. do it. And I always, I'm a middle management advocate in the sense where I'm always thinking about middle managers and like what their reality is yeah, um, and the pressures upward, downward and lateral that they're facing. And I'm like, that's going to be super hard for them to yeah. implement that in a Boeing or implement that in a Nike. But what I appreciate about their work is the, um, their provo- their provocateurs. Yeah. I think yeah. I said it correctly in yeah. that they do, really question like does everything need to move at the speed at which we've deluded ourselves in these sort of online you know or not online just the speed of digital communication technologies does the business need to move at that speed and i think that's what i think we've lost is the ability to say you know what you know what that's a great question let's talk about it next week in our weekly check-in yeah right and training coaches and leaders, or excuse me, training managers and leaders to be like, you know what, you actually can put the brake on some of this, which also yeah. allows you to figure out how you're going to respond to those scenarios and how you're going to approach it, yeah. as opposed to that uber busy, over caffeinated, you already know the answer and you just need to get it done person that can show up and disrupt your team. So let me ask you, because I'm always curious, what else have you read recently that's really struck a chord for you? What else are you loving? What else am I loving right now? Um, let me think through. Todd Satterston's, um, I read it frequently enough, but I read his Every Book is a Startup. Right. Um, and if you haven't read that one, man, go get it. Um, because it's really, it's, it, it, the, the point is that it, it teaches us authors to think about the book as if it were a startup in its own business, as opposed to a tack on to our business. Oh, I love um, and so just so many great nuggets in there. Um, so that would be one, um, not being cheeky. I loved your book, right? So that's oh, another one you. that, that is there. Um, even if you were being cheeky, I'm fine with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've recently read creative calling by Chase Jarvis. Um, yeah. and, you know, our books share a lot in common, um, but I think he did a really good job of um, on the sharing your work and publicizing your work. He did a much better job on that side. Um, nice. um, so let me see if there's been another one that's like really rocked me and changed things for me. Oh, eight dates, not book related at all, but the Gottmans have put out a new book called The Eight Dates, and they're about creating really powerful relationships with your partner oh, and things like that. Yeah. And it's such a one, like, go out and get it. You and Marcella will love it, right? Um, yeah. And so what I love about it, though, is it's one of those books where obviously it's talking about your partner relationship, yeah. but it's talking about things like trust. It's talking about things like conflict. It's talking about things like adventure and growth and spirituality where I'm like, hmm, I need to be infusing some of these in some of the relationships that I have and asking these types of questions. And so it's one of those books that seems to be myopically focused in one area. But when you really think about it, it's about all of your relationships. That's great. I mean, Gottman, what's his first book? Something like The the Seven Secrets to Marriage, The Success of Marriage. So Gottman's spelled with two T's. And I love it. I mean, his basic insight from that first book that I remember is 
here is the secret to a successful relationship. The positive moments have to outweigh the negative moments by a ratio of, I think, like seven to one or five to two or something like that. And a positive moment is not just a nice word. It's an affirming touch. It's, a, you know, it's something in your love language, whatever it might be. But it's that, it's that, are you showing up mostly positive to your partner? That's it. That's the way. That's what makes the difference. And he talks about the, uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the things that destroy relationships, mm-hmm. stonewalling, cynicism. Uh, I can't remember the other two because, you know, I have a relationship that is absent of all of those things. So it just doesn't even need to know them. Yeah. But the, the Gottman stuff is fantastic. So I'll look out for that, that other, his new book. Yeah, here's here's something from that that I really loved, and it was I think a, a watershed moment for Angel and I. So Angel and I, we've been together for over twenty years. So um, there was in chapter two, I think, or in date two, the point was there are some perpetual problems that will never be solved. Right. Right, and it's like oh. <laughs> we can just let some things go or we can find different ways of negotiating. And as I started thinking about that, I was like, so what if we gave ourselves in our business, in our work, if we were disabled, say, you know what, that's a perpetual problem. We may not ever find a solution to it. Yeah. So let's stop beating ourselves up, stop wondering about it and find up ways to work around it, to appreciate it, to, to make fun of it, but just understand that it's always going to be there. Yeah. Um, and so in, in business, it could be the size of your market. It could be the product fit. It can be, a, you know, the way the company was set up. It could be all sorts of things that I think we inherit yeah. uh, that are perpetual problems that it that. just does us no good to continue to have meetings about, to continue to talk about, to continue to try to fix and say, you know what that is? What are we going to do about it? Yeah. Oh, you know, my son and I, just celebra- we just celebrated 27 years together as a couple and honestly, there are some things where like, oh, here we go again. And, you know, enough of the time we're wise enough to kind of see the pattern and, and laugh at it. And then sometimes we're not and we end up in a kind of, you know, bickering, passive, aggressive, sullen, or maybe I'm just onus myself, sullen state. And then I'm like, oh, wait, we just did that thing. Uh, okay, it's good. Yeah. 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 Day two. <laughs> I mean, too I'm going to that on a random thing. I know we're going completely off piece here, but um, I've just been watching a show on Netflix, I think, called Catastrophe. Okay. And it's, uh, you know, it's based on an American man and an Irish woman hooking up somewhere and then kind of being catapulted into uh, a relationship. And what I love about it, I, I read an article with uh, the two stars are also the two writers. And he's like, they work really hard to make this the look like a really typical modern relationship. In other words, there's a whole bunch of bickering and winding each other up and kind of just awkward weirdness. And the writer is like, and you need to know that this is a great modern couple because they are fully committed to each other. They are in it together. They are they have each other's back. And they're bickery, and they're petty, and they're random, all of those things. And I'm like, God, oh, that's so good. But so I watch that, and we're like, oh, we see ourselves in some of that. Yeah, we see ourselves in it. And again, I think 
while it may seem to be off topic, I think where we get into, and, and you sort of mentioned that as, um, you know, when you look at the foggy fires and you look at the different ways that we can um, avoid or yeah. some different ways we avoid advice is I think a lot of times we get stuck in the narratives about the way things need to be and the storytelling about it. Yeah. As opposed to when we can just say like, no, like we're bickery, we're fighting and we're completely into this. We, there's not a, like a major problem to the relationship. We are consistent with who we are. Yeah. What are we going to do about that? As opposed to trying to fix and nibble at those parts without understanding the core essence of the relationship, you know? And, and there's something about the moment of, you know, this is kind of connected to, I guess, appreciative inquiry or something like that, which is focus, keep focusing on the good. You know, it's like it's so easy to get hooked into what's not working and the bad, but it's like if you're lucky enough to have, you know, what say what Charlie and Angela have, which is a 20-plus-year relationship where there's a lot of good there, you're like how do you – not forget that. How do you amplify the good rather than fret about the bad? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is again on the point of being aside. So one of the questions that Angela and I have been wondering about for a while is whether we're going to stay in Portland. Right. Right. And so, um, this has got some things, we've got many things we love about it, a few things we don't love about it. Um, but over the weekend, you know, when we were really doing some appreciative inquiry and we were really like doing some gratitude stuff, it's like, you know what, how much easier would our life be if we just assumed that this was our place for three years and just stopped right. talking about it, right. right? Just assumed that we were staying here. We love it. There are things we don't like about it, but that's going to be any place. And stop this worrying and stop sort of, yeah. you know, the, the going around and, and questioning and just appreciate it, right? Yeah. Nice. And, so, and so I think, you know, to your point, um, this, so one of the things I do when I when I do um, strategy retreats at this point, and I'm I'm doing the experience architecture from them, is I always have to fight in the wins of the team or the organization over the last year. Yes. Because I've learned if we if I let them design the agenda, they're going to show up and it's like, what are all the problems and yep. how do we fix all the problems and then yep. what's what's creating those problems and never stop to say you know what? We're actually kicking a lot of butt here. Like we right. got a lot of things going on that right. are great. We work well together. And so I have them do that process because it's that same sort of thing that it shifts the conversation from just being problem solving and focusing to yep. like, oh, we have a lot that we're doing well. How might we apply what we're doing well to these other problems rather than starting with this blank slate of this is a problem. You got to fix it. Yeah, totally. This is like, how do we, yeah, how do we yeah. build on the good? Yeah. yeah. How do you build from the good? And so I think, you know, to the point about being coach, more coach like, right. I think one, there's a way in which you can, when you have one of those interventions, which is just one of those coachy ways of saying, like, when you're seeing something, you need to fix it. Right. Yeah. Or you need to, you need to have the conversation is starting with the good, not, not in this sort of lame, like, you know, the crap sandwich sort of thing, you know, where you, they always tell us, put the good and have some bad and then some yeah. good at the end, which Awful. is so cheeky, yeah. right? But just saying like, look, there's a lot that's going on here. You're doing well. And I noticed this piece. Yeah. Can exactly. we talk about that? Right. Yeah. And so starting that from a place, because I think that goes to the, um, the terror quotient that you mentioned yeah. in the book. So go ahead and run us through terror real quick. Sure. So this is the neuroscience of engagement. And if you're in this world of leading people or coaching people or interacting with people, you really should know something about the basics of neuroscience because it tells you how people really work. And if you'd like to have more effective relationships where people hear what you have to say and appreciate you for who you are 
and spend more time in a good place with you rather than a triggered bad place with you, then just knowing a tiny bit of neuroscience takes you a long way. So here's a summary of the terror quotient. It starts with understanding how your brain works and here's the basics, five times a second at an unconscious level, the brain is scanning the environment and going, is it safe here or is it dangerous? Is this a place of risk or is it a place of reward? If it is a place of risk, if it feels dangerous, the brain goes basically, get out of here. You know, this is like a deeply evolutionary based instinct, which is like, let's avoid the danger. So you move into that little amygdala at the back of the brain there, into the brainstem, fight or flight, the lizard brain. And when you're in that fight or flight state, you're not at your your you're not at your best, or at least you're at a different version of your best. You're not at your most generous, most open, most appreciative, most thoughtful, most insightful. You're in a survival mode. When the brain says this is a place of reward, then you do move into that state of going, well, I'm going to, you know, I feel safe, be vulnerable, courageous, and be smarter, and see the ambiguity that's there. So it behooves you to go, well, how do I make an experience with me feel safer rather than dangerous? And terror is an acronym, and it's the four drivers that help make you create safe spaces, tribe, expectation, rank, and autonomy. Tribe, expectation, rank, and autonomy. So tribe, the brain is going, are you with me or are you against me? So anything you can do to create a sense that you're with them rather than against them really helps. And that can be everything from how you look at them, how you sit next to them, the language you use, is it I or is it we? You know, Charlie and I are doing this uh, interview with our video on so we can see each other because there's a connection there. And it's just we're more likely to feel safe in this conversation because Charlie and I are able to kind of you know, nod ahead, see what's going on, do all of that stuff. I mean, personally, I wish Charlie wasn't naked, but that's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm living with it. I'm fine. <laughs> so tribe, I, are you with me or against me? Expectation is like, do, do I know what's about to happen? Do I know the future a little bit? You know, do I know what's about to happen or do I not know? So the clearer you can give people guidance around, let me tell you what's what's coming up, the safer they feel. So you're like, you know, this is going to, we've got another 10 minutes left on this podcast. You know, this conversation will take place in the room. You know, it'll take 20 minutes. We're going to talk about this. All those little things about give people as much content and context as you can because it makes them feel safe. R is for rank and the brain is asking, are you more or less important than me? If you feel more important than another person, you feel safer. So anything you can do to lift the rank of the other person, increase their status, really helps. Um, and the fourth and the final one is autonomy. And, you know, the brain's going, are you making all the choices here or do I get to make some choices? And the more you allow them to make choices, the more they feel safe and the more they're likely to be engaged with you. Part of why this matters in the context of the advice trap and in the coaching habit book is asking a good question almost always raises the terror quotient because now you're on their side, you're giving them status because you're saying answer the question, you're giving them expectations, which is this is what we're working on, you're increasing their rank, saying you're smart enough to figure this out yourself. 
asking a question is not the only way to influence the terror quotient, but it is a it is a sure bet every time. If you want to make a situation feel safer, ask a good question. If you want to reduce the terror quotient, having a default advice giving habit is a sure fire way of doing that. Because you're always saying you're not smart enough to figure this out yourself. So you lower their status and their rank. You're always saying, you don't get a choice here. I'm going to tell you what to do. So you lower the autonomy. You always lower the tribe because I'm like, it's me versus you here. You, your problem, but I'm the smart one. I'm going to tell you how this works. And you probably increase expectation a little bit, except if you have a reputation for giving not very good advice, which honestly, if you have an advice giving habit, you not, not, not all of your advice is as good as you think it is. So long, long rambly answer there, Charlie, but you know, that neuroscience of engagement pulls people into, pulls them forward and asks them to be their very best and asking a great question creates all the right neuroscience context to, to help them thrive. I appreciate that. And that, that lets me set up sort of the point and you have it so much through the book and it's, it's around the real intent of getting, of asking coaching questions in the way of being in behavior, because there's a way by which, and I'm sure you've seen it, Michael, where like you can actually weaponize coaching in a way sure. in the sense where you can weaponize the questions. I should be yeah. clear. Right. Um, yeah. And, and so there's that point when we're looking at the terror quotient, if your people have learned that your coaching questions aren't really coaching questions, right? Right. And that your spirit is not really about curiosity and learning and growth. Exactly. Um, you're not doing the work you think you're doing. I, I, love that, I love that you're saying that. I mean, that place of going, I'm genuinely willing to sit in a place of uncertainty and ambiguity as I ask this question is such a powerful leadership statement. And of course, there's a way of asking fake questions. You know, have you thought of, did you try? What about the, those aren't actually questions. That's just advice with a question mark attached at the end. So coming in and going, look, I'll be reading Greenleaf's book, Servant Leadership. It's big and it's a little dated, but the concept is so powerful around it, which is your job as a leader is to be in service. And the way you know that is, are you leaving people better than when you found them? And there's not many people who'd go, well, I'm not in service to the people I lead. But I think you can cock an eyebrow and go, really? Is that is that really what you got? Um, I think there's for sure a way of weaponizing coaching or just kind of doing fake coaching. You know, I'm not really asking you questions. I'm not really listening to your answer. We're going through a kind of a ritual, which is me basically still telling you what to do. Absolutely. And and to the terror question, like when you set up that expectation that someone does have that autonomy, that they does have all that, and then you just sweep the rug from under them, like you yeah. violated the whole thing. And so it just makes it harder for that next time for, sure. for, for them to do that. And so it's just really important that, um, you know, it reminds me of a quote from the Dada Ching, but it's, it's a paraphrase here, but it's like the tools in the master's hand cut cleanly, but in anyone else, it bruises them. Right. right? Yeah. And it's kind of like the same thing that you might understand someone doing. If you use them incorrectly, they can cause some harm. Right. And I'm not trying to make people nervous of, of having, I think some of the best converse, coaching conversations are those ones where you sort of fumble through them. You really don't know what you're doing, yeah. um, but you're generally in the process. Right. Um, yeah as opposed to the overstructured one. So I don't want to say like you have to know 100% of what you're doing and how right. it's going, but I think there's that spirit that you have to have That's that it. will always shine through. I So if you keep coming back to going, look, 
this is how Michael talks about being more coach-like. Can you stay curious, genuinely curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? That takes you a long way down the path because what's nice about coaching is if you're generally curious and you ask a question and they're like, I don't know, that's a stupid question. The worst that happens is they say, I don't know, that's a stupid question. And you go, well, let me, let me see if I can ask you another question and maybe that will work a little bit better. Um, with the right spirit and a few good questions, you can go a long way in terms of becoming a more coach-like manager and leader. Okay. A um, couple of more questions to sure. set those expectations. Um, <laughs> nice. You know, it, you list six foggy fires. I kind of mentioned yeah. this earlier. And foggy fires are patterns of conversation that stop you getting clear on what matters. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you the hard question here, Michael. If you had to whittle it down to the, to the, the six down to two yeah. that are near ubiquitous, which would they be and how do we overcome them? <sighs> well, that's that's a good question. Um they're all they're all they all show up pretty regularly um i do like the i do like the popcorning one so the popcorning one is when you go to somebody hey what's on your mind and they go oh well there's this oh and there's this and there's this and there's this and there's this and they're kind of like all these challenges are pop 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 popping and you can feel that kind of anxiety raising in your chest which is like Oh wow! I, I'm I'm now feeling anxious um, around that, and it triggers your advice monster because you're losing control of the conversation. You're like, I'm gonna I'm gonna provide value here. There's so much going wrong. How do I tell them what to do? So I think popcorning is one of them. The other one that's that is really is common is coaching the ghost. So that's when you know Charlie calls me up and goes, Hey, Michael. I'm having a real problem with Angela right now. And I go, oh, yeah, so what's going on with Angela? And Charlie goes, oh, Angela this, blah, 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 Angela that, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Charlie, she sounds like a nightmare. I don't know why you've been together for so long. What else about Angela? And Charlie's like, blah, 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 Angela, blah, 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 blah. And we have a 45-minute conversation about Angela. And in the end, who cares? Because Angela is not the thing. Charlie is the person I'm having this conversation with. And what I want to be saying is not tell me more about Angela. I go, Charlie, what's the challenge here for you with Angela? And, you know, I'm not talking about Charlie Gilkey and Angela. I'm talking about a different Charlie, a different Angela. But what's the real challenge here for you brings the conversation back to the person you're actually in conversation with. And that allows you to get around coaching the ghost. And the ghost isn't always a person. You know, it's like, hey, I've got this new book that I'm trying to write. And I'm like, tell me more about the book. And tell me more about the book. And I'm like, no, what's the challenge here for you in terms of tackling this new book? So there you go, there's two. People, I guess, will have to read the book to find out the other four. Hey, that's part of what I'm doing here. <laughs> um, and, and as we set it up, we, you know, it's not that giving advice is never appropriate, right? It's that's just right. we want it to be our default. So you list four different D's of giving good advice. And so I'm going to ask you one of those like limiting questions again, which I know you love All is right. of those four D's of giving good device, a good advice, which one would you have people focus on practicing? All right. So, okay. Here's my confession. I can't remember what the four D's are. <laughs> can you, can you list them for, can, do you have them there? I don't have them 
give me just a second. We're going to do a little <laughs> admin note here. Um, That's hilarious. This is hilarious. I, I know which one stuck out for me. Give me just a second. I, I can get it. Um, I think there's – I'm, I'm going to make one of them up, and I'm probably wrong, but I think one of them might be decisive, which is kind of like the, 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 the insight is if you're going to give advice, give advice, which yep. is like frame it, say, look, I might be wrong, but here's my opinion on how to do this. Take it or leave it. I don't mind. I've got no ego attached to this. But I'm like, I'm giving you advice now. And here's my best guess at how to go ahead with this. So you can see as I do that, what I'm doing is I'm being really clear what my advice is. Yeah. And I'm framing it as it's just my best guess. So it might not be right. It might be wrong. It probably is wrong. Mm -hmm. But you want advice. Here's my best guess. Okay, so here are the four Ds. So you right. you get me a couple here. So define it, diminish it, deliver it, and debrief it. Nice, cool. That's good. I like that list. So you could see me diminishing it, which is like I'm being really clear, but I've done all this framing. My best guess. Let me put it on the table. I don't know if this will work, but it's a possibility. And then the debriefing it piece goes. So you heard my advice. What do you think of that? How did that land with you? What feels useful here? Does does anything feel useful here? Um, and what I try and do is I try and hold the space to go, I'm okay if they walk away going, yeah, it was interesting, but not really that useful for me. And I'm like, yeah, I, I thought as much. <laughs> and, and neither of us lose face because I've diminished it beforehand. When they go, yeah, that doesn't really work, I'm okay. And I diminish it beforehand so they're able to say, yeah, your advice is, is nuts, Michael. I don't know why I would be following that. Yeah. Um, what I love about giving bad advice sometimes in the right setting is that when the person knows it's bad and doesn't work for them and you're in a relationship where they can tell you that, yeah. it actually empowers them in this weird way where they're like, actually, no, yeah. that's not right. Like, yeah. here's what makes more sense. It's uh, so good. It's like, <laughs> it's weird, but that failure actually drives confidence and autonomy in that other person and it strengthens the relationship you know particularly if you're their boss it kind of inverts the power piece for a little bit yeah and that's i think you know you mentioned this in the book you have to be vulnerable in a case where you might give some bad advice as a manager yeah. and have actually empowered your staff and your teams to be like mm, that doesn't make sense boss <laughs> and you have to be like Oh, maybe it doesn't make sense, right? Yeah. Tell me, tell me more, right? Yeah. And then you get curious there, and then you can flip back into the coach without ever losing sort of your credibility in doing it. It's only oh. when you're the advice monster that you lose the credibility that, that that plays up. Exactly, you got it. Alrighty, so you know, Michael, as always, I could talk to you forever, but you know, we uh, need to wrap things up. Um, as the guest for today's podcast, yes. you get to leave our listeners with one invitation or one challenge. So depending upon what resonates with you. So based upon what we've talked about, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do aside from buy your book? Well, if people are interested about this idea of the advice monster, we have up on the, the website for theadvicetrap.com uh, a questionnaire to figure out which of the three advice monster personas is kind of most real for you. Is it tell it? Is it save it? Or is it control it? Now, it's not... It's not you know, written by Harvard psychologists. It's a fast test. I think there's 20 questions there, but you'll get a report that says, look, this might be the one that's most re relevant for you. And here are some strategies and tactics to manage that. 
no, no one of us has only one of those advice monsters going for it. It's always a mix. But if you're curious to learn a little bit more about your advice monster or just get some of the downloads and freebies that are at advicetrap.com, then that's the place to go. Michael, thanks so much for joining me. I can't wait until our next conversation and your next book and saying, well, Michael's done it again. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that'll help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.